This is Shift Run Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. You're listening to Shift Run Stop. Yeah, we've got Alex Bellos, who is the author of Alex's Adventures in Numberland, which is a best-selling math book, which I saw today on the... Um, best-selling bit in Waterstones oh, so brilliant. well done you're up there as soon as you go in the shop I've got the well done my sales, sales marketing people at Bloomsbury for oh. making sure that they do that and your cover am I right in thinking your illustrations are some of them done by Andy Riley they're all done by Andy Riley yeah I know Andy from university yes in fact when I was doing the university newspaper he was doing the cartoons and I always thought you know I think he's brilliant mm-hmm. and once I'd finished writing it I thought it would be fun to get him to do some cartoons and so I asked him to do some cartoons for the insides and then the publishers who have responsibility for the cover they said well let's use some of the cartoons from the inside on the outside and mm-hmm. I think it, it works really really well because his cartoons they're you know there's sort of many layers and I think they're great. We had him um, on the show as a guest as well Andy but yeah he was saying that he's really interested in like contraptions and there's that sort of technical side to his art that's really Fun, I think, and geeky. Yeah. So you knew him at, at uni, and yeah. was that your first? You said you uh, wrote for the uh, newspaper. Was that your first um, experience of sort of reporting and journalism? No, I'm one of these uh, sort of like irritating kind of sort of journalists who, ever since I can remember, I was reading newspapers, trying to do the school magazine, doing school newspapers, right. trying to write for the local paper, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so when I went to university, even though I was studying math or math and philosophy. The first week I went to the, you know, the meeting of the student newspaper and I ended up a year later, I was editing it, so I spent time editing it. And through doing that, I met loads of, you know, other people who became journalists, people who became cartoonists and, you know, became a journalist straight after university. There's really, only for a moment did I think, oh, do I want to be a, a mathematician or a philosopher of maths? And about ten minutes I thought, no, I'd be a journalist. <laughs> and then I went to Brighton, the Brighton Evening Argus, where I kind of was a trainee cub reporter. And you spent a while in, in Brazil as well, didn't you? Your writing's taken you all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, Brazil, Brighton. It begins with a B. <laughs> um, Bogner. Um, Braintree, which I went to Braintree for the book, which was exciting. Yeah, I spent five years at The Guardian, and then I went to Brazil. I'd never been there before. Actually, I suggested to The Guardian, why don't you send me to Brazil? And they said, mm, it's a good idea, but we're not going to send you there. If you want to go there, you need to resign and go there out of your own accord. And I couldn't exactly say, oh, I'm going to stay then. So I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so this year I bought a ticket and I went. But it was sort of the best thing that ever happened because very quickly I started writing stories and was made the correspondent, was put on a retainer. Um, a couple of years later I was asked to write a book on Brazil, um, travelled all around South America, all around Brazil, speak Portuguese, made a television programme about Brazil. And so that I came to be defined by my kind of Brazil experience. I got back about five years ago. I didn't really know what I was wanted to do because you can't really be an expert in Brazil if you're not in Brazil anymore. <laughs> Once every four years, when there's a World Cup, it's fantastic, I can make loads of money and make loads of work, but if it's like mm-hmm. an odd, a year with an odd number, there's like no money to be made. <laughs> so I needed to think about doing something. So I thought, well, I got a degree in maths, maybe I should try and get back in touch and get back to sort of mathematical roots, and so that was the beginning of writing this book. And even though the book is about maths, I think what my spin on it is actually... It's very like the book I wrote on Brazil. It's, it really is the foreign correspondent in the world of maths. Mm. So I do lots of geographical travelling. You know, I went to Japan and India and America twice and Europe and Braintree, obviously. 
And when I'm there, I'm doing exactly what I did as a foreign correspondent, which is talk to people, interview people, maybe describe them, try and write kind of narratives. So it's not just about the maths, it's more about telling a story. Mm-hmm. Because I'm trying to aim at people who aren't mathematicians who don't know anything about maths. They're trying to say, look, maths is interesting, maths is fun. Mm-hmm. But if I think if you keep on, you know, it's that show, don't tell. If you keep on say, this is maths and I'm gonna, you're going to learn it, people go, oh, I don't want to do that. But if you say, hey, I've got this great story about this geni- math genius who lives in an apartment in um, Manhattan who built a computer that worked out by two billion places, you're like, my God, that's interesting. And all of a sudden, they're like, but, but why did you do that? You're like, oh, because pi is an irrational number. Oh, what's an irrational number? So you can actually have these really good stories and definitely it was my training as a foreign correspondent that means that I can tell stories in that way. What do we have here then, Leila? Well, it's, uh, it's snack time, but you might notice Dave's not here. Where's Dave? Where is Dave? I don't know. Oh. Nobody knows. But yes, we have some delicious things that have been very kindly sent to us by Mike Reeve, who you'll remember from a relatively recent episode. Mike came on with uh, Tom Beckett. Hello, Mike, at Mike Reeve on Twitter. Hello. Yeah, hi, Mike. Thanks so much for posting me all these things. He has sent us um, a bag of sweets called uh, Caramel a la Herb Svitsvergik. Um, no, try again. Go on, you do it. Well, I don't speak German, but no, I know I that I know that Spitz... Is, is probably more likely than spit <laughs> <laughs> because it's got a P as the second letter. Spitzvergerich. We, well, you know what we need? Yeah, we need him back on. So the, these are caramel a la herb Spitzvergerich, mm. and then uh, the the sub uh, title <laughs> is Krauter bonbons. Mm. Krauter. A kraut is like sauerkraut is cabbage pickled cabbage yeah apparently sauerkraut is now whether krauter is the same thing but there's a picture on the front of this packet of like um, a, a little weed with some red flowers <laughs> hanging off of it it's not advertising you can see the roots <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the kind of thing that you might see on some health food <laughs> so actually. we literally have no idea what's inside this um, is there well, anything written in English I mean, on there? No. no. Caramel might be the giveaway. There might be uh, some caramel involved. They might be cabbage and caramel. <laughs> that sounds appetising. Uh, marriage made in heaven. Oh, they look quite sort of functional in um, an Eastern block. They look very East European. <laughs> East German. And the, oh God, I both so, one. Jung Spitzwergerich. Mm. What flavour are you getting from it? <laughs> Hard to say. It's certainly caramelly. Right. But also... Mm, almost minty. It does taste a bit like it might somehow aid your digestion. Like a tonic. Are you getting a slight licorice? Mm. It feels like mint, licorice and caramel all at once. I think you're right. So, listeners, if you speak German and you know what on earth it is we're eating, would you please let us know? It's certainly the crispiest sweet I've ever eaten. I'm just going to crunch, the, crunch it quickly before we get on to the next one. Mm, me too. Okay. feels like it should be doing me some good. Mm. Maybe it will. Let's wait and see. Oh, it's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> you never guess from the incredibly functional packaging. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be such a boring sleep. Thanks, Mike. Mm, thanks for that treat from uh, the Alsace. Did you get a return address so you can send him the, <laughs> the rest of the bag? recreated 
this sort of apocryphal experiment that Henri Poincaré did, which was going to his baker's every day for a year and weighing the bread. Mm -hmm. And he did it because they just discovered, like, the bell curve. He was buying the one-kilo loaf, and so he knew that the spread he would get would be a bell curve with the media, no, the mean at one kilo. And when he found out that it wasn't, that the mean was somewhere else, he went and said, actually, you can give me money, but then he called the police or something like that. So I live, like, five houses down from Greg's the Baker's. So I went and bought a baguette for every day for 100 days from Greg's the Baker's. <laughs> and did you, and get a normal, did you get a normal bell curve? I, no, not really. Oh. Basically, what I did, I got something which looks like a big lump, but I only did it 100 times, and the spread was really quite wide, mm-hmm. so I couldn't really tell. But then I actually realised that sometimes I'd get up in the morning, 7.30, 8 o'clock, straight away. The first thing I did, go to Greg's bike. First person in there, so it was opening, like, at 8 o'clock, gum bag and weigh it. Sometimes, like, I slept in, or, like, I forgot. And so I'd go, like, at, like, noon. <laughs> and then, when I was getting this, like, slightly... It's like a bell curve that was sort of shifting slightly to the left. I was like, why, why, why is that? And then, once I bought a loaf of bread and weighed it, like, at 8, and then I weighed it, like, at 9, and I weighed it at 10, and I realised that a Greg's loaf gets about... 10% lighter mm. by lunchtime. As it loses water. Yeah, as it dries out. Do you think Poincaré noticed this? Well, what this it problem? made me think is that it's probably a broccoli story, because, uh, unless the way that they made bread didn't lose weight. Or he might have been so kind of anal, he would have gone at, like, never every day. <laughs> he might have been more functional than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he could have done. Did you eat the bread? Um, Did you find you put on four pounds as well? Did you chart your uh, weight over the course of the experiment? I should have done that. (laughs) But but basically what happens is that gradually... I didn't want to throw any of the loaves away because just to prove that I'd done that. And also I just was quite intrigued. And I would get different reactions by people coming into my flat. And like one of my neighbours just stared at it and she goes, Oh, it's a rat trap! (laughs) I was like terrified that we were going to be dated with um, rodents, but never did. And some other sort of ones went, Oh, brilliant, you can make... um, Tuscan, what they call bruschetta or something, which apparently you just get, you know, it's old tomatoes and old bread, and you sort of rub them together and it takes up. But one, you get bored of that, and two, Greg's is really not great bread, <laughs> and it just it's just disgusting. <laughs> and actually, in the book, I made some comment about that that I got slightly ill of eating too much of this basically it was some, I was casting aspersions on the quality of Greg's and I was told to take it out because they were afraid that Greg's might sue so I hope well, Greg's let's hope no existing to Chiffron stop or they've got a sense of humour if they are but I actually really enjoyed doing, writing that chapter because it was really fun going and buying something and weighing it and working out what it's going to be and then I had a graph and you put it down and you just stare for ages at all the different, you know, the graph that was appearing. That's the thing, I suppose, that numbers... If you're interested in numbers, then the whole world gets this extra, like, veneer of interestingness over it. And you've got really high ones. Like, oh, it's a really high one. And we've got a really low one. Oh, <laughs> this is the excitingly low loaf of bread. It's just, like, loaf of bread from Greg's. It's not even made at Greg's. It's made at some, like, massive, I don't know... Uh, oven somewhere in I don't know the home county somewhere and it gets like driven in every morning now Mike has also sent us some little sort of day glow coffins <laughs> which I think contain candy bones they look uh, Japanese they're from cyber, cyber candy. candy yeah so inside the the uh, small day glow coffin 
is what looks like a collection of bones, mm. jigsaw bones. Would you say this? They sort of yeah. got joints, and then a, a handy, uh, a handy map showing how all the bones fit together. Well, let's try and build it. Right, so the foot bones connected mm. to the. They smell the nice. Bone. Mm. Sort of like a, a pressed sugar kind of. Um, they're like the shapes that you. Well, this is what I think anyway. They're like the shapes that you get um, with those candy necklaces and bracelets you have as a child. Well, this Ooh. is quite good. This Join is quite, them together. This that's feels fun. quite educational, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, the hand bones connected to the arm is that bone. The oh, yeah, well done. So. Join the first one up. What's that, that one? The is this the sternum? That's the. That's the. Oh, tail that's the bone. pelvis. Yeah the, yeah, the coccyx. So that must go on. What's this one? Is that broken? Oh no. We've got a breakage. Oh no. The pelvis is broken. Yeah, yeah. The, the coccyx oh, no goes wonder. in there, look. So what's that? The ribs? Yeah. Yeah, you've got the chestal region. If you if you live in Japan, um, or have recently been to Japan, can you tell us what the deal is with these little coffins with skeletons in? Yeah, is this normal? They're quite sort of um macabre. Yes. For a child's candy game. There we go. Oh, that's pretty good. Shall we eat bits? Yeah, let's eat some. Let's so eat some. I think I see four different colours here. Mm. So it looks like the upper arm, the head, the spine, and the lower leg is a kind of white, uh, just like a pure white colour. Is that mint? No. It's I'll not. say. Lemon? No. Just generic. Generic sweet. Okay, yeah. let's try the green one. This is going to be minty, isn't it? My teeth are already hurting. <laughs> it's just incredibly compressed sugar. The green bits taste a bit like the white bits. Ah. I'm trying a yellow bit. Ow. Um, this is so sharp, you can't eat it very fast. That's good for children, though. Yeah, you feel like you have to let it slowly dissolve. Respect the sweet. Well, in some ways, I now want to eat some more of the uh, Krauter bonbons. Mm. So, um, Just to get rid of the taste of that. It's like a sort of, yeah, palate cleanser. Oh. Mike Reeve, you, with these bonbons, really and otherwise, you're spoiling it. Alex, I wanted to ask you about the title of your book, because in the UK, it's called Alex's Adventures in Numberland, but in the US, it's called something else, isn't it? It's called... He is looking at Euclid. Oh, that's such a good pun. But why does it have two titles? It has two titles because I originally sold the book to the UK. Then the Americans who we sold it to found out the English title and they were like, no, no, it's not going to work. They're going, who's Alex? <laughs> and I was like, well, that's like, it's like a joke. <laughs> and they're like, no, it wouldn't work. We need another title. So, oh, I mean, I don't know if you've... Like, think titles for books. It's like when you're in a band, when you're a teenager, and you want to get a, <laughs> a band name, and, like, you write millions and millions and millions of, like, names on a bit of paper, and they're all totally rubbish. And then when you get a good one, like, you realise someone else has nicked it. And I was thinking, oh, God, if the Americans don't think Alex has mentioned Numberland, if they don't think, if they don't get humour, what are they going to go for? And so we were thinking the things like, you know, the secret life of numbers, like, really quite dull titles. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be terrible. So I had to give a selection of names and one of them was his looking at Euclid which when I was writing the chapter on Euclid I was thinking Euclid Euclid hey he's looking at Euclid hey that's funny and so I was thinking I've got to use that as a pun somewhere but I didn't think of it as a title and then when I thought I thought well I'll just tell it to them because it's quite funny and when I said it they just loved it what's sort of interesting is that when I then said it to some of my British friends I mean you guys understand it because you understand you know you're slightly on the wavelength of you might know who Euclid is 
Most people don't know who Euclid is. It's just <laughs> it's unbelievable. Even like really, really intelligent people who have, you know, got, you know, three A levels and like MAs or maybe even doctorates. You see, they're like Euclid who? Whereas in America, everyone knows who Euclid is, even if they don't know anything about anything. Well, that? Um, it must be something about the way that, and they're taught geometry. This, they're, they're taught this is Euclid, right. and also. Every town has a Euclid Avenue on it or a Euclid Street. Oh, right. So actually in Brooklyn, there's a, one of the um, metro stations that's called Euclid Avenue. Right. So I think the word Euclid is just really well known. Mm-hmm. They're like, Alex the Ventures and Numberland, they're like, mm, yeah, yeah. That thing's a bit twee or something. It's a bit parochial. So weirdly, Alex's Adventures in Numberland does not work in America. You know, the publishers there were right. Mm-hmm. And his looking at Euclid would not work here. Wow. It kind of is good that they've got something that works for, for both of them, but it is kind of annoying because I can't have, you know, Alex's Adventure Numberland or here's looking <laughs> <Euclid. laughs> com. And each time I mention it, I have to say them both. And it's a bit, you know. <laughs> Do you have the same um, cover on uh, the same picture on both for the Andy Riley picture? No, they did their own. They, did, they didn't want any of his cartoons actually. It's kind of a bit annoying. It's probably because they wanted it to be smaller so they could be within their kind of twenty-five dollar bracket. What they've got on the cover, they've got this sketch just made out of numbers of. Humphrey Bogart, so with the hat at an angle. It's kind of looks, it looks kind of cool. It is cool. And it's a gag, and you see it with the title. Here's looking at Euclid. It's like the face, it's bogey, but bogey made out of numbers. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and is that, are they both available on shelves now? Yeah, the American, the British one came out in April, the American one came out in June as mm-hmm. I went over to America. When's the paperback out? Because um, I'm a bit scared of the, the idea of spending £18 pounds on a book. <laughs> so I'll, I'll go and have a flick through and go, oh, this looks good. I'll wait for it to come out on paperback. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a, you could just buy it on Amazon where it's half price. Uh-huh. What are you interviewing the author the same day? <laughs> <laughs> then what do you do? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd say the thing is that it's quite heavy. And I know, you know, it's mm. maybe not very firm to get really big sort of um, biceps reading it, which you, you might be required to. Uh, uh, reading in the bath is very difficult with hardbacks, I find. Is that true? <laughs> it's probably bad for the book. Well, it's bad for boys staying a long time in the bath. Is Unless it? you have cold bath. Or for the old testicles. Yeah. Oh, well, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. If you're going to lie in the bath, then at least if you've got a paperback and you can hold it in one hand, then that's relatively easy if you've got a hardback you're now committing both hands to the act of holding up a book the problem with the paperback though is the moisture of the water it slightly messes up the paperback I've definitely had a few like slightly warped paperbacks that just I think these are much more sturdy for for water yeah they're all all weather all weather terrain white proof yeah Yeah. dry you know just wipe it off with a towel this Um, interview's taking a very unexpected turn yeah I mean what's going on here (laughs) this has never happened before even younger maybe than that that's a 13 how low can you go and they're age inappropriate mums who all fancy Robert Patterson R Pats is that that what they're calling him Uh, apparently so (laughs) that's good I didn't know that yeah so they love him and they love the uh, the pure love story aspect of it I suppose which um, is apparently a common feature in those sort of gothic storyline Dracula doesn't really get into sex very much in the I suppose in a way though you don't need to if you've replaced it with that you know the metaphor Mm, (laughs) you like bite your neck and make some blood come out yeah Mm -hmm. yeah then it's that's enough it's enough to be biting people that also need to be trying to do a sex at them Um, (laughs) what's her name so so you've got Arpats and what's the girl's name Oh, you girl. took a photo of her. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. I've got a very pouty photo of her. Is this is this a quiz question? Do you know? 
I'm trying to remember. It's not um, Kirsten. Kirsten. Yes, Scott, yeah. Thomas maybe. Scott Thomas. No, that's someone else. Oh. That's Kristen Scott Thomas. Kirsten Scott then. You, it's I'm not Kirsten Dunst because she's a bit older. I'm not going to say Kirsten Scott. If, no, I don't. Kristen think it's Scott. I don't think it's Kirsten. We're not very good at popular I'm culture, gonna, are we? We're shit. <laughs> wow. Especially youth culture. There's right. people listening to this. <laughs> Screaming. It's lucky this isn't going out live. The mathematically interesting thing about Rubik's Cubes, what is the number such that no position requires more moves than that number to be solved? And that number is called God's number, or has been called God's number. And people have been working on it for a long time, and essentially you're only ever going to solve this with a computer, so you need to get more and more computer time, you need computers to get faster, and you need also to get clever algorithms to go through them all. And when I was writing my book, I spoke to this guy, Tom... I don't know how to pronounce it, because it's one of those, it's like, it's R-O-K-I-C-K-I. So it could be Rokiki, or it could be Rizitsky, or Rokiski, or something like that. Anyway, Tom has been working on this problem, and he proved it was 22, but was hoping to get down to 20. Because I think you start with it being a really high number, and then you kind of eliminate subgroups and subgroups of different positions. And, yeah, he, in fact, a couple of days ago, I noticed that, he just joined Twitter. <laughs> and I was thinking, that's a bit strange. And so I went to see if there was anything. And basically, the only, he has tweeted once. And it was, you know, Rubik's Cube. The God's number is 20. And that was it. And the link. And the link goes to a website. And I think they said that they finally worked out to do it in July. So that means that there is no position of a scrambled Rubik's Cube that requires 21 moves. You should be able to solve every position well you, you can it's been proved now mm-hmm. solve every position within 20 moves I mean well, some of them in less so any position 20 any, any position yeah so you if you're good I mean this isn't based on me this is based on the perfect player right well yeah <laughs> the perfect player yeah. I know that some of these Rubik's Cubes competitions they have one you've got to solve as fast as possible mm. but they also have this side competition which is you're given one and you're I think given a certain amount of hours and you have to solve it the quickest way mm-hmm. and that's actually really difficult because Quite often, you have your own little method, and you basically go through all the algorithms, but you're not, not thinking about how to do it the most efficient way. Mm. You have, you're basically mm. doing the way you know how to do it as fast mm. as possible. So you might be doing it quickly in a very few seconds, but still wastefully yeah. in terms of the number of moves. Yeah, but the brain power of actually having to think of, well, how can I think laterally and bypass mm. those moves might, would take you longer. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, Rubik's stuff's amazing, isn't it? I love it. I, I've got, like three Rubik's Cubes at home and they're all different and they all have their own flaws um, because uh, there's so many different kinds and you get speed cubes which are supposed to be really fast but actually they're just really sort of slimy and annoying Can either of you solve a cube? Not efficiently, I, no I Even inefficiently I sold it a couple of times but it takes so long I, I just think that it's no better than chance yeah, I'm quite rubbish and I, I've seen friends who can do it quickly quickly in terms of yeah. you know few, few seconds um sort of down in the i guess like 20 30 seconds kind yeah. of thing which looks really impressive i can remember getting one and working out how to prove it and being like so pleased with myself and then i can remember that my record of solving it was like one minute 29 seconds well that's what my memory is and then i would never played with one since i'm slight on the half of me wants to buy one and see if i can remember how to do it but the other half 
I know I'm not going to be able to do it. <laughs> Growing up sad, isn't it? <laughs> but I think the more you practice, and it's and it's not even you start off trying to intellectualise it and think, well, if I move that to there, what will happen? And after a while, you internalise that move, and you know, and you just know, and you, and it's yeah. yeah, and it's amazing, and you can do it really fast. I right? bet some of our listeners are really good. Yeah, Rubik's Cube. send in videos if you yeah. are. Yeah, or let us know what your best times are for a random position. Especially what you're saying, I think that lots of this sort of mathematics things and. Uh, we think of it as a brain skill, but it's actually a motor skill. Mm. So that it's true when you learn how to do the Rubik's cube or something. And I can remember as a kid, I would just be moving my hands the whole time, yeah. and sometimes I'd think things. I'd move my hands, and um, I was just at the Mental Calculation World Cup a couple of months ago, which basically has the world's best mental calculators. Some of them are what's called oral calculators. Yeah, with the, with a no, and they have to basically say the questions for them to count it somehow you stop them being able to speak they can't count anymore (laughs) which is kind of weird and they're also ones who use learn using an abacus so even this metal they're not allowed to have an abacus so when they're solving it they're moving their hands around and if you hold their hands behind their back they can't count so there is some weird thing about counting or the brain skills of being a motor skill of being kind of linked Mm. Also, I watched Kick-Ass the other day. Have you seen it? Is that the slightly spoof superhero film? I haven't seen it. I hear it's really good and contains the word cunt. It does. It's really good. It's really good. I was was worried about it for about the first half hour. I thought it was going to be not very good. But then then loads of cool stuff happens and the little girl gets introduced. It's the little assassin who's like a ten-year-old girl and and she's amazing. Oh, is that why it's shocking? Because it's a little girl saying the word cunt. Right. Yeah. But it's really good, and um, Nick Cave's in it, and he's uh, Nick Cave. Nick, Nick Cave. Cave and the bad Nick, seeds. Nick Cage. <laughs> right, I like Nick Cage. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah. You, what, what's he been in? Face Off. I liked Face uh, Off. I mean, yeah. it's silly, obviously, yeah. but he's quite good in it. Okay. He's yeah. He he's um. I'm take your face. Very. Off. <laughs> um. Nick Cage. Nick Cage is in. Kickass and is quite good in it. I thought that he could only sort of do one thing, but actually he does something a bit different, and, cool. it's, and he's quite well cast. And it's Jonathan Ross's wife that wrote it, isn't it? She wrote the screenplay for Stardust as well. Oh right. Based on That's... a novel by Neil Gaiman, or maybe oh, maybe yeah. I'm getting this wrong. Maybe Neil Gaiman wrote the screenplay, mm. and Jonathan Ross's wife had nothing to do with it. I can't no, remember. No, you're right. I think she did have something to do with it. Have you seen it? Yeah. Is it good? No, well, it's all right. I mean, it's it, you'll like it. All right, we've got a unicorn in it. Basically, <laughs> the whole film is a big unicorn. No, it's it's kind of got that princess bride kind mm. of fantasy thing going on. It's good. It's worth watching. I'll give it a go. Yeah, it I'm like surprised you haven't seen it actually. Yeah, I don't, I think I quite like the trailer for it, and then I never got it. Sort of passed me by, but um, yes, okay, maybe I'll watch that next. Mm. I watched Inception at the cinema. Have you seen that yet? Yes, yeah. it's good, isn't it? It's it's quite good. Yeah, you're not um, you're not committing. I don't. I don't I don't think I'm quite seeing what everyone else is seeing, and it makes me sad. Oh dear. I didn't ever feel like I was quite completely absorbed in their adventure, and like my heart was racing, and I thought, wow, this is amazing, and that's, uh, as a lot of people seem to have been, um, somehow it didn't quite get me like that. But Were you, in, were you in a funny mood when you watched it? Were you just <laughs> I don't not... know, maybe, maybe. Maybe that's something wrong with me. I'm on the shore wave. I'm in the ether. I am going, if my visa comes through in time the international congress of mathematicians which is the sort of big mathematicians get together and it happens every four years 
In fact, the one in 1900 was massively famous because David Hilbert, who was a great mathematician of the era, I think there were 20 problems that he wanted to see solved in the next century, which almost sort of directional, like a lot of research, and they're the kind of prestige things to solve. Right. And what interests me about this conference, which I've never been to before, firstly, it's like 3,000 mathematicians are going to be there. I don't think any other academic discipline or any other subject has, or any pure subject, has an event like this when you get everyone who's anyone in the world getting together. And I'm pretty sure that the reason why it happens is that maths at a high level is such a lonely thing to do because you can't really share what you're doing with anyone else. It's so complicated, no one will understand it. You know, the extremity of the loneliness of the mathematician is manifest in this mega event where they all get together in some kind of big academic group hug. <laughs> Every four years. It's not even Every an annual years. event. That's incredible, isn't it? Well, <laughs> what they do, the, the Fields Medal, which is the sort of people call the Nobel Prize of Maths, is announced at the ICM, the International Congress of mm, Mathematicians. Really? And this is... Up to four are given, and so they're given once every four years, and they have to be given to people, mathematicians under 40. And they've invented a few other um, medals that are going to be given, which I think might be really like the Nobel Prize of Maths, because it's a bit unfair. You know, anyone over 40 can't get it, and the whole thing about the Nobel Prize is given to someone for their kind of whole body of work. And presumably there are lots of very good mathematicians who are over 40, and they've done some incredible work. Yeah, loads. I, I, I think it's slightly exaggerated that you have to have had your great idea age 24, 25. I think there's this kind of cult of youth um, in lots of things. Um, Anyone who's seen the film Goodwill Hunting will know the Fields Medal, because I think his professor in that has been awarded it. I've never seen Goodwill Hunting all the way through. I've seen it like a million times with different bits, five-minute snatches. And, sort of. yeah. and also, I think at the time, I was really... I didn't like Matt Damon. I was like, Matt Damon... Mm. Now I'm like a huge Matt Damon oh, he's fan. He's got better, isn't he? He's yeah. just great. Yeah. He chooses good roles. Anyway, I've, I've thrown you on a tangent there by talking yeah. about Goodwill Hunting. Well, yeah, the International Congress of Mathematicians. Yeah, so what they... As well as giving away these awards, it's become a celebratory thing. Um, each discipline within maths, they're divided into about 20 different areas. They have, they have a plenary session where one of the top guys from that area basically tells the rest of the maths what that area's been up to. If you are like a top person in probability, you really aren't going to have a clue about what's going on in topology. Or if you're like really into you know, algebraic geometry, you're just not going to know anything about game theory. Um, so you, it's really saying, hey guys, this is what we're doing, you know, sort of holding, holding hands. The proofs are so complicated that, you know, the Fields Medal was awarded four years ago. Um, one of them was this guy, Gregory Perelman, who had solve the Poincaré conjecture, which is one of the great unsolved problems. And it was a scandal because he didn't show up and he like refused it, he doesn't want it, he's then offered a million pounds for it and like, he's refusing all, all, all the money. Um, and when he gave his proof, or he presented his proof, it took someone two years just to check the proof. Wow. And there were probably only maybe half a dozen people in the world who could have even done that. But yeah. imagine like devoting two years of your life to like check a proof. So, I mean, it's <laughs> to check that somebody else who's yeah. better at math than you is, is allowed to be given this medal. Yeah. So I think math is weird in that way that it's because it's just not applied. You can't. You know, if it's physics, you could say, well, we were looking for this thing, and then like here it is proved. There it is. Mm. You know, it's so complicated. So I'm kind of interested to see what goes on and how these people who are supposedly speaking the same language but aren't really. Like, how do 
of the memory work and the dream and I was sort of thinking this doesn't really mean anything to me because my dreams aren't really anything like this they're just completely formless are they more <laughs> abstract? yeah I think so I've had some very vivid dreams recently that I've hey. remembered I had a dream that I had to drown my dog and I remember the feeling of holding her underwater and the, the feel of the bath it was really horrible and then a couple of nights ago I dreamt that an actress whose name I still can't remember and in the dream it was annoying because I couldn't remember her name um, I had to introduce her on stage at some big event and everyone resented the fact that I was the one doing the emceeing and introducing mm. her anyway and I was really aware of this that the audience basically hated me mm. I made it worse by being really late um, and when I got there I met the actress and we had a little chatty conversation and we were fine you know she really liked me I really liked her she was an older woman but you know we still had the kind of jokey flirty thing going on and it was really good but it meant that I couldn't ask her her name and I wanted <laughs> more than anything in the world to know her name right. so that I could go on stage and introduce her mm. and it's very difficult to introduce somebody without ending with their name and in my brain <laughs> while I was asleep I was going through all the different thoughts of like planning ahead and mm. I don't think I've ever remembered in dreams planning ahead and sort of thinking of oh I could do that no that won't work or I should do that and I should go mm. and ask this person um, and then I woke up and I never saw the resolution to the dream I don't know whether I got away with it whether mm. I went up to her and confessed everything and said I'm really sorry I don't know your name mm. I was left with this complete feeling of being at a loss and feeling rubbish and, and starting the day feeling absolutely shit it's so weird isn't it how your brain can make a narrative like make a story arc mm. without you knowing it's dead like, a horrible weird. one that really frustrates you as well yeah and uh, it know it must know that's where it's going and know which part of it knows and why can't you know and it's dead weird. I always felt that you have some control over dreams, and I'm sure mm. in other dreams mm. I've forced myself to wake up mm. or I've, I've forced the change in story. I, I mean, it's funny even using the word story. It sounds like a, an anxiety dream, though, doesn't it? It's like maybe you're anxious about something and it's coming out in your brain in a weird way or oh, something. Yeah. Know, those kind of things. Performing, women involved. Yeah, weird. Who knows yeah, what that could be about? Yeah, don't analyse that one too deeply. Blimey. <laughs> I guess a lot of the, sort of the thinking needs to be done on your own, just in your own head. It's so sort of abstract. Mm. It's just you and a pen and paper. So pure. So Not pencil either. You, you think pen? <laughs> More of a pen man when it comes to maths. Uh, yeah. No, I'm a pen. I'm a pencil. I'm. I got really into this um, Muji. What they call those pens? Oh, like the propelling the, pencil with yeah. the with the with the lead in the extendable nib thing in the middle. Yeah, and they're quite they're like three pound ninety five. Three pounds so ninety-five. That's actually quite good because it means you never lose it. Like I take it all around the world. Okay, because you it's wouldn't brilliant. want to throw away a three pound ninety-five pencil. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, but it's, even it's, a pencil it's just, that wasn't great. extendable would cost you nearly that. <laughs> <laughs> but Muji, they they do have some nicely designed stuff, don't they? Yeah, there's one on Carnaby Street, I think. Yeah, and no, I love Muji. In fact, of all the places that I've visited um, for the book, Japan was just like the best. And they totally love their math there. Mm. Like the guy who invented Sudoku was like the coolest guy in the world. Oh, you got to meet him. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah, and I sort of imagined I'd go there and he'd be some sort of you know, Japanese businessman type or some very shy, kind of, you know, sort of mm. bowing the whole time and stuff. But he's like a gambler. He was talking about his, like, habit of, like, sort of geishas. <laughs> you know, he was such a chain smoker that he was using each cigarette to, like, light the next cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> and he had um, this, his um, the pillows or the cushions on the sofa all had like horses on because like he like he likes the horse gambling so much, 
and he goes gambling every year to this like gambling tour of America where there are these different like race stadiums and he had these John Lennon glasses and he was just like cool <laughs> and he, he was really excited because he's re- as well as a Sudoku which he didn't invent it he saw it in American obscure magazine and thought I like this so he adapted it and gave it the name Sudoku and when he started doing it in Japan that's where it kind of wow. took off and does he license that is that his brand he, he, he coined the phrase I'm not sure if he's trademarked it because it would be interesting to know when the Daily Express or whatever Princess Sudoku whether they have to give him a penny I mean mm. like is there a licensing um, or did, did you ask him about the, the money side of it his company Nicoli does the Guardians and they, I think there are different companies doing different Sudokus and some of them you can call it Sudoku and some of them you call it a number game yeah, yeah. Um, but like for instance the guy who then brought it from who saw it in Japan and brought it to the Times was a retired judge Hong Kong judge he's actually a New Zealander but his kids live in London and he was at the Times and he gave it or maybe still gives it to the Times for free um, but makes money publicising his own Sudoku books I mean, there's so much money in it, like so many millions of people. Yeah, it's very popular. Yeah. Very it's popular. very, very popular. Yeah. But Not with f- me. Do you do you like it? Um, I'd never did it before the book, and I got really into it. Okay. I, do, I, do, I do like it. I'm not very good. The ones that are complicated, the hard ones, are a bit too hard. And also not that interesting, mm-hmm. because you've got your algorithm, and you just need to go through each box, working out what number mm-hmm. it can be. And if it's a really difficult one, you know, it's going to take a lot of ages and you're going to have to remember little stuff in your brain. So it's not a very interesting process of thought. What I really love about it is that when you're focused on it, it's such brilliant concentration that you really can make cheap journeys go quickly, rail journeys go fast, and it's, it's, it's really satisfying. Yeah, it's that kind of focus thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I can't, no, I can't do them. Can't do them. I've probably done an easy one, but I yeah, I don't know. I just, it doesn't really appeal to me. Maybe it's not physical enough. Maybe I want a thing I can play with. I think you need a Sudoku Rubik's Cube, which I, I believe one. I have seen. Yeah, I gave it to um, Mike Reed. Okay. Because um, I just said he wants this. Alex Bellos, thank you for coming in today. Everyone should look out for your book, Alex's Adventures in Numberland, if they're in the UK, or Here's Looking at Euclid, if they're in the US. And if they're in Holland, it's called something like... Gestulch <laughs> Lose. Which translates sense? I don't know, I don't know. It begins with a G, it's two words. The first one begins with a G, and it begins with a no. I have no idea what it means. They haven't told you what it means. <laughs> something like the something of numbers, maybe. Ah. But I would have thought the something of numbers would sound would look a bit like the something of numbers. <laughs> Probably a local pun. Gestalen, Gestalen, Gestalen. German sayings. <laughs> yeah, we based on a phrase or a <laughs> film or something. Yeah. 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 But thank you very much. Well, thank you. And, and have fun with the um, International Congress of Mathematicians. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Sounds really good. Um, do you have a website where you kind of write up your adventures or do we have to write, wait for the next book before? Um, I do have alexbellos.com. So www.alexbellos. That's A L E X B E L L O S. Brilliant. Thank you very much.